2: Hello and welcome to The Napoleonicist. It is day five of Waterloo Remembered and we're moving away from our focus on forgotten foreign forces because today I'm speaking to the scholar from the United States, Professor Ed Hoss, author of All for the King's Shilling. Ed, it's fantastic to have you on the show. How are you?
1: I'm great, and I'm really glad to be here. How are you? I'm, I'm very well, thank you for caring. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your
2: general research interests.
1: As I always told my students, I try to look at history, military history, from the bottom up. I am interested in the, the human factor in combat, the neurophysiological process by which men deal with or don't deal with fear in an effort to ascertain how then uh, specific nations create combat processes, uh, like with the British uh, era, we're talking about this close range volley and charge, how that empowers or doesn't empower individuals and, and combat effectiveness. So yeah, that's what I've been doing for a long time. It's kind of a lonely field. I'm surprised that there aren't a lot of historians really interested in this, but doesn't mean I won't keep being interested in it. People will
2: particularly know you for your book that I've just mentioned, All For The King's Shilling, where you looked at what motivated soldiers on and off the battlefield and what types of people join the army, their experiences. What got you interested
1: in that topic, first of all? I think it was my time. Well, I had started it beforehand, but I think my time in the FBI, it's, they would always say we do things, you go into warehouses looking for bad guys, because of fidelity, bravery, and integrity. Except that wasn't it at all. When you would go out and teams, you could pick the guys you wanted to go with and teams, And you would find out quickly, and this is not to disparage either, because most of the FBI are accountants and lawyers. You'd find out that the guys who just weren't comfortable in that situation. So, so they would essentially like guard the front door of the warehouse. Well, thanks. But, uh, and once i saw that you started to form this primary group of these guys that you could really trust and that they could trust you it empowered you to such a degree and then the norms of all this was those guys who were guarding the front door uh, they 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 didn't get the respect they didn't and they didn't care about living up to the norms they needed to do that because for them I think that the, the fear overcame their need for this that social support but the guys who were willing to do the work that was just fascinating to me and so that's way back in the day 30 we were just talking 33 years ago that I started to wonder about the mechanics and so stumbling as I first did, just looking through all the sources, the primary sources, the British accounts, when somebody like, I hate to admit this, I can't remember, I think it was Wheeler said, I have no family save my comrades. You realize what a close bond, and I found so many of those kind of comments in the soldiers' accounts that I began to think that there may be something really to this. And then I was fortunate enough to teach to command general staff college where every single day I had captains, majors and lieutenant colonels who once they learned they could trust you would come in both in class and out. They would come to my office and share their stories, their reflections and your ideas has sounding board, a, an authentic, this is the real deal, this isn't just an, a mental construct that Ed came up with, but does it float with these people who have seen five deployments and seen the real sharp end of the, the spear? So that's where it started.
2: And in a way, I, I suppose it helps with the research process when you're trying to tap into the mind of a soldier that you have a lot of accounts, whether it's memoirs, letters, diaries, um, and the the Napoleonic era is really rich in that sense. In that there are far more personal accounts from this period than, than there have been for conflicts prior to, uh, prior to the Napoleonic Wars. For a variety of reasons, one of which is liter- literacy and uh, improving literacy rates, um, but there are others in there. What drew you to the Napoleonic Wars specifically and not, say, the, the, the arms battalions during World War I or, or something of that nature?
1: That's a heck of a question. And why am I the only American in this BCMH thing that I love so much? Uh, I shied away from American history. I didn't want anything to do with American history. And that's because how poorly it's taught. Uh, it's like you're the drum, and they just, they, they, the way the system is here, they just pound, pound, repetitively pound, Ben Franklin, George Washington, pound. And at it, it, no point are you pushed to engage or read on your own. And because you're getting it shoveled at you, and you're just regurgitating stuff on tests, when I get a chance to pursue my academic uh, career, I went with the things that were most interesting to me. And I think because the very reason you just stated, the rich, the corpus of, of knowledge that's out there amongst these British soldiers. And I started reading those back when I was, geez, maybe 20 years old and I think I was brought in and I've learned that I have been able to shed this and I'm talking about the romanticism that's often played up about Waterloo or men in combat and I was just telling my wife that when you teach hardcore military history to professionals and they emote and they share stories and they cry in class and those things. It, it can take a real toll, but the validity of the things I think that I used to read about, and I looked for patterns and you, you saw them, that, I don't know, I just, I could not let it go to the point I ended up writing the, my first book there, is in an effort to figure out how all this fits together within the, the social and cultural construct. Why I picked it and stayed with it, I just think that they were so compelling. And you were drawn in maybe by the romance of Waterloo, but then you soon discover that about the men's lives, the, 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 the challenges they had to overcome, and, and the role of the small unit in both in combat and off the battlefield experiences. Uh, I've had a lot of people ask me why are you interested in British history but I'm really glad that I chose it because of the the people I have found in the BCMH, uh, wonderful people who have done real academic work well beyond any of the buttons and bows history or anything like that. These are people who have jumped in and revealed the you know the whole
2: thing I mean it's interesting that you you base a lot of what you write about on what you've learned from your your students in effect by by listening to their experiences and seeing how they have reacted and recently you did a paper looking at things like brain chemistry and the role that that has to play in people's responses to stressful situations do you think that Soldiers minds have fundamentally changed that much in 200 years. Or do you think that on a basic level the way they think and operate in combat now is Broadly speaking similar to how they operated 200
1: years ago. I Don't think it's broadly similar. I think it's identical Because one of the things that brought my students Because history and in the army military history is a drone on Uh, stupefying experience but because I chose this bottom-up approach and that I empower my students so much I give them readings they get in small groups I listen I facilitate but I really ask them questions I don't have answers to because if we're asking questions we already know what's the fun in that but because we look at the, the tip of the spear stuff that they've all experienced it resonated with them. And then we would go era to era. And I would of course provide them lots of readings on that. And they would identify with what the soldier said, what drove him. And my takeaway of this is how fortunate I was to be in an environment that pushed me beyond an intellectual abstract understanding. There is this fidelity when you can share these things, listen to what soldiers tell you. And like with this, oh, uh, religion plays a great role. No, it doesn't. Not when the bullets are flying. My students will go, it's not about God or country or any of that, because it's about survival. And what you do in those moments, which... I found out so many fascinating fascinating things like the role of oxytocin, which is the brain's, they call it like the hug hormone. And it has a remarkable capacity to dial down some of the negative effects of when you get the spike of cortisol of being, when you don't think your actions will have any effect, when you're just there receiving, And now your body's pumping all this cortisol, which is the same uh, biochemical for depression. You reduce what your actions are. You can go to submit. You just give in. But turns out oxytocin, if you give aid or receive aid from a comrade, oxytocin is produced and can help mitigate so much of that. And I was fascinated by it. I was also fascinated that you could buy it on Amazon. Okay. Oh, can you? You can. But the, of the research, no one has ever done yet. What is the proper dosage? When? Because it happens within the brain. And the fact that you can get a nasal spray of it for like $40 on Amazon. And it wasn't getting very good reviews. Because people would use it and expect some kind of cathartic relaxation, except they could be 260 pounds, and this is a little thing. And it was, it was comical, but that whole, how does an individual cope? I just, yeah, the neurophysiology of this all lined up, and like with the British soldiers, methodology we talked about uh, close range volume charge what you end up with is because you believe you have efficacy your brain now will pump epinephrine and norepinephrine which have real positive outcomes in your heart rate your you know metabolism It's just it all makes sense but within the construct of that took me a long time to learn about that and then I was fortunate enough that one of my students was President Obama's doctor. And so I wanted to make sure that I, after reading all these journals and, and the British soldier stuff and melding it together, I gave it to the White House physician team to verify because Ed could have screwed it up big time. But I didn't feel I could ever take it into public unless I had verified like the medical professions that i in effect
2: got it right it so. does help if you have the ear of the white house doesn't it and we should probably just say for for people who are wondering we are not advocating that you go and buy oxytocin or anything else on amazon no um, no, but, no. Or, or, what, nothing else of a drug variety on amazon do do what you like in terms of <laughs> buying legal stuff on amazon nobody cares about that before amazon try and sue me um, but please, don't go searching back any oxytocin. No, to
1: I, I was just pointing out how ridiculous it was uh, because there's no research yet on body weight, body mass index, dosage, time, duration, expectation. None of those have been... But there's a lot of interesting research just on the role of oxytocin. So,
2: I'm sure some pharmaceutical expert listening to this will have uh if they're listening to this will have <laughs> that there is and thought right perhaps i uh, need to see what scope there is to uh, invest in that Let, let's let's take it away from drugs shall we and and okay, take no. it back to,
1: but <laughs> to yes, <some> history <laughs> but what i was, the oxytocin is something your body it's a hormone your body produces and the i think it's kind of ridiculous that somebody thought they could market it somehow You know, so let's move away from
2: it. Stick a label on it, you can sell it and market it, can't you? One of the big concepts that you draw upon um, in a lot of your research, but particularly in all for the King's shilling, is the idea that's laid out by Stephen Westbrook of a compliance model. The idea that compliance of soldiers is a sort of a three-legged stool based on a sometimes quite complex and quite delicate and quite subtle mixture of coercion remuneration and reward for the context of our listeners first of all who perhaps aren't familiar with the model and how it works tell us a little bit about how it how it's meant to operate
1: i found out that in fact the thing that we call westbrook's model was actually in a book called a comparative analysis of complex organizations That was not Westbrook's model, it it predated him. And I was just reading that work I went, wow. Uh, So showing that this model's been been around for at least 50 years. I think your description is apt. It's a nuanced, it's a subtle mixture of those three. And when we would talk in class about it, students say you know every once in a while you've got to use coercion you know if whether it's somebody gets a DUI if you have a soldier who's not uh, performing they're going to have to bring in the threat of some kind of uh, action to force a behavior so so the whole thing still applies today and my students tend to hone in on the remuneration because I'll just tell you, if I wasn't getting paid, what I get getting paid, if I didn't get educational benefits, if I didn't have the retirement after 20 years dangling, uh, most of them say I wouldn't be here because they may have been brought in for patriotic or other reasons, but the remuneration aspect today remains a big deal. And then when you get into, of course, the normative, which seems to have more gravitas in, in regards to, you can believe or do whatever you want to do with your own GI benefits, but the, the norms of this small group, when it, beyond just what the military imposes, and of course, to be an effective unit, an effective soldier, you have to have an alignment of the norms of you and your small group and what the military needs. But it was interesting when I presented that to them, I learned to watch them as they had epiphanies sitting right there that, yeah, this model works. And then we would use that model throughout all the eras we analyzed and saw the shift, especially in Napoleon, to remuneration with, uh, essentially veterans' homes, uh, medical treatment, retirement. Of course, we always brought up that a knew that if you died doing his work, he was never going to have to pay that anyway. But it's uh, it's been a really good tool for students to see the transition to to today, uh, how that that model pretty much captures leadership in some ways.
2: I you what always really staggers me about the British programic era though is that there's very little in the way of remuneration because they're meant to be paid a pittance anyway. Um, They they lose a good chunk of what they get paid because it's taken to cover their their food when the best of times their wages are months in arrears during the Peninsular War, the, and, and what you particularly found is that the, the food they get, and most of the time they don't get the food that they're meant to, but even the food they were supposed to get wasn't actually nutritionally adequate. So on the remuneration thing, it's not so much that there's a, a leg there, there's, there's a leg missing from this through stool. And yet the coercion on the face of things Seems to be huge because you can quite easily look at the number of lashes that can be issued to a private soldier, which is 1500 at this time. Okay, so they don't actually hand out that punishment, they tend to use somewhere in the region of a thousand to 1200 in the most serious cases. But it it seems like it's all coercion, very little remuneration. But you see it very differently, don't you? I
1: think the soldiers joined the army out of. Most of them out of some kind of, in some kind of economic desperation, so they think there's going to be remuneration involved, it's pay, food, and then they're shocked when it doesn't appear because as much as Wellington would have liked to have the specie to buy foodstuffs and whatever, but he couldn't take the chance. Of rifling through the, the Spanish population like the, the French did, that had real strategic effects. That sometimes his callousness, I think, comes through, but it's more of a mission focused calculator. Well, this is what has to be done for me to accomplish the mission. The coercion is shocking, and it shows a lack of understanding of human motivation. When you think you can take this unemployed weaver and beat him into some kind of behavior. Uh, but what I think happened is once they and they're enlisted for life, the vast majority of these men, once they're enlisted and they're in, unless they want to take the chance of deserting, and you know, more than a few did, that that small group, your mess group. I think really, really, really became integral into your day-to-day survival and your emotional support and knowing you're gonna stand in, in, in line with those same guys to your left and right. So in my perception of these things, the coercion actually drives you deeper into the group, into the normative component. I think the lack of food drives you to that small group to share food, to to endure. Uh, Shared hardship is one of the great, uh, I hate to use it, it coalesces individuals into a group. So was it intended? No, none of this was intended on the, the part of the British military. But it happened, at least that's how I perceive it. That's what my soldiers all talk about is that, that small group unity, the, the intellectual, the emotional, the physical support. So would I have loved to have been a British soldier at the time? Yeah, you know, I'm glad my time machine isn't gonna be you know, connected to that. Uh, I am shocked at how well these men endure, but what choice did they have?
2: Absolutely. And, and as you said, the conditions were horrific. And it strikes me that once people get absorbed into the primary group, what's they, that, that kind of group of comrades, once they get drawn in, the coercion kind of comes in a different way because peer pressure becomes and it starts to get tied up in your potential for survival. And this is something that I've looked at a lot in terms of why plunder is so rife and yet so little is done about it. Within the army, and ultimately, what I think it boils down to is that you need people to report on situations like this. The officers won't report on it because they know the men are starving, and they don't particularly want to be flogging all of their soldiers all of the time because that has a catastrophic impact on morale. Yet, for the sergeants and the NCOs, and Wellington himself picks up on this, they're too close to the primary group in respects, and the privates certainly aren't going to turn around and say, "Oh, by the way." Lieutenant so Perkins over here has gone and stolen two chickens because they need their cut in the mess pot because they haven't had rations. And what's actually really interesting is that also the it's you you find the officers sometimes getting their cut. So it, it's it's a really complex picture. Um, but the peer pressure element kind of replaces some of the coercion that
1: you might assume was there. I think it's really subtle. You did a great job. Uh, painting that, that it is a, almost a form of coercion, because the small group is defined just normative behaviors the giving and taking away of abstract ideals that could be, you just, you can't be a member of this mess group anymore. Now that has ramifications because the food, when they got it from the military, Were dispersed by mess group so if you're kicked out and it would quickly spread why you were kicked out you ran in combat or you were repeatedly caught pilfering things but never sharing them and so your behavior ends up being shaped essentially by I think the survival needs of that small group and it will change who you are. You might not want to be there. You might find that chill going down your, your back in combat. And you just want to run. But you know that there's so much more at risk. And it would be the esteem. And not just, oh, I need my comrades to like me. It's you joined that group initially because you're a rookie. Somebody brings you in, they start teaching you about survival what you need to do that is you're, you've joined that group just to live to get past one day to the next especially with a lack of food delivery they have to teach you yeah son this is okay because we're going into the next town and as soon as the officers are busy doing other things we're hitting the potato fields we may find and plunder homes but but son don't ever touch the inhabitants that's that's verboten and you learn but i think that the the unity that creates is is ironic in that you'll soon be willing to lay down your life for the men in the group you joined to survive and again as i mentioned before i think there's some wonderful interesting books on this including Ilya Berkovich's Motivation what's a lovely book, but if I might read this bit to you, I marked it, that you can't just rely on primary group cohesion. It's far more than that. It's just not here's The problem with overstressing primary group analysis is it leaves out the broader fabric of values that held armies together, and I'm calling the BS on that one. I mean, there is a certain degree of unit identification. Ask anybody who's in an the 82nd Airborne. And they would come to class and they would have to curtail their hooahs or they would just be sitting in class because that's that's the norm of the 82nd. Hard charging. Are we gonna do it today? Hooah! You know, you're identifying with that unit. But when you get transferred, you keep that in your heart. You're always, I was a member of the 82nd even though I'm not a member of the 10th mountain, which turns out the 10th mountain doesn't do mountain training. So, okay. But you end up with a large scale identification and you may even end up with a pride in, and I know they end up with a pride in service, but those are not the things that are gonna drive you on the battlefield. And I think I think Ilya, even though he brought it out, I think in his summary, he mixed He mixed John Lynn's initial sustaining and combat motivations. I think he just kind of twisted them together. And I think that model works so much better when you see them as distinct, because what brings you into the Army or what keeps you in the Army is not the same thing when bullets fly. So I often get a lot of pushback by academics and conferences who always have these I th- pretty abstract reasons why men fight. And all I can say is, I might have bought some of them had I not taught where I taught. And the students would just look at you and laugh sometimes and go, Sir, that has nothing to do with nothing. What it has to do with, and we're talking leaders now, not only does that Westbrook model work and Lynn's model work, but they'll let you know that that as a leader, the hardest thing, especially the few of them that have gone all the way through the enlisted ranks and are now majors, they said the hardest thing was letting go of the primary group. Because as an officer, you are not part of that primary group. Your NCOs are part of that primary group. So, if you win the NCOs, you'll likely win the group. But letting it go, one of my, my best students, a guy named John Spencer, we talked about this endlessly. And as a Ranger, Army Ranger, he said when he became an officer, it was like, where is all my support on these difficult Ranger challenges, deployments? And so, yes, I think there are a lot of abstract ideals that, that tie in. But I think it's best when people look at it to differentiate the three kind of areas of motivation because then they start being, I think there's a clarity involved. And then when you overlay Westbrook's model, you do get some alignment things. I've had epiphanies ago, oh, that's what he's talking about. And here's here's the lever that was making that happen. Do you think there's
2: a difference between what gets a soldier on a battlefield and what keeps a soldier on a battlefield?
1: Absolutely. You could have any number of reasons why you join. Then, now, and it's interesting because, again, that economic lever gets pulled a lot. Uh, For the British soldier, he wasn't going to get a pension, probably, or if it would be a pittance if he got it and the Army didn't cheat him out of it at the end. But you joined for an immediate need unemployment was high you your skill set likely being related to the weaving and looming industries which are now being industrialized you, you have to survive so my students may have joined many of them after 911 for uh, emotional and patriotic reasons but most of them admit that they're there for what they call the bennies the benefits it doesn't change that the fact that once they get in, what sustains them is their pride in the Army values. The, the, the madness that can be the Army is always mitigated by the people and finding people of, of character, finding people who you would, you would lay down your life for. And you're just, you've just, just been interest, introduced to them, and you can tell. Uh, That's what sustains you. Now, you're getting paid pretty well, too. British soldier, not so much. Uh, I think there was, with the British soldier, he's got, he's really got an issue of those kinds of things to keep you in good pay, sustain, you know, respect within society. Although it gets old with my students who are tired of being thanked for their service. Not that they don't appreciate it. But it seems to be when people say that, they can go, oh, I've done my bit. And they what they hope somebody would do is stop them and ask them where they've served. How long have they been in? Details that the soldiers are proud of. I mean, guys who have been on six, seven deployments, that's insane. But they're proud that they were willing to, and they stayed in because America needed them to stay, and That's what they view. That's a sustained motivation, especially that respect, the external respect, belief in the missions. But when you move to the next, you know, that you move closer and closer to combat, they'll be the first ones to tell you that all those things fall away, except the driving force of that small group. And I think if people would, when they're they're wrestling with these ideas, that they would realize that they're all blended together. But certain ones in certain specific circumstances have more weight.
2: So let me throw a a really, uh, almost a deliberately awkward question into the mix here. Because you've got a few instances where you during the Napoleonic Wars where you get two fairly well motivated armies coming together and things that spring to mind here are things like the British versus the French armies early in the peninsula war such as the battle of Tavavera and you've got two armies that are fairly well motivated um, and neither has perhaps such an inclination to run in a combat situation so what do you feel tips the balance
1: well i should have mentioned before that what and you've heard my work on napoleon which isn't exactly sympathetic uh but where he brings us into modernity is that sustaining portion he's going to give you Benefits, retirement, medals, medals, this, which is so important to my soldiers. And not that they're craving the medal, but it's important to them and their unit to be able to s- disperse medals for people who show that singular moment. That, and they're often are, they're angry because the Army has become very parsimonious in delivering them which my students would tell you, what's the point of having it and then having a soldier actually attain, do everything that's required there and then not give it to them? So I think Napoleon brings us in far closer than, I think he was about 100 years ahead of his time. But when you get two motivated armies, then it's gonna, and you can't be simplistic and say, It's primary group alone. It's nonsense because you have leadership plays a role. Uh, Weaponry, fatigue, uh, belief in those leaders, uh, recent losses in your unit, which may shred or at least greatly impact that primary group. There's been some interesting books like Rob Rush's Hell in Hurricane Forest, where he can show that, If you're willing to bring newbies in and feed them in, you will take ground because they will be initially aggressive because they don't know any better. They don't know how, so you'll take ground. I think it's one of the worst uh, examples in American World War II history of how that was not the lesson we should have learned. So Rob Rush has made some good points, but That's in lieu of using bodies and endless supply of recruits. In lieu of you're you're going to make ground. It's in lieu of training and everything else. So to your question, then it becomes tactical methodology. How good are your officers at seeing? Now's the time to go to line. Now's hold your fire. And I think what goes back to your original question, one of your original questions about the neurophysiology. If you believe your actions have efficacy, your body will pump those hormones. And for the Brits, that bit of efficacy was hold your fire to close range. And you can imagine the, the emotional need for these men to discharge their weapons. They're fearful. Here are the French, How, I mean, we must fire. Except they've learned again from the small group, no son, hold your fire. We will make them pay, not at a range of 120 yards, which you might as well, again, with that British Colonel who said, if you ever got shot at that distance, you shouldn't take it personally because the other person couldn't possibly have been aiming at you. And knowing your, your officer can gauge the enemy because if they fired 120 yards, or 120, 100 yards, you could probably then quickly advance get in with like the 30 yard range and the brown best will do you harm at 30 yards. And they immediately go to bayonet. And if you see that that tactical methodology, one keeps you alive, you'll be willing to do it even though your instincts are screaming to do otherwise. So again, the alignment of what the military needs and what they do tactically with what the small group wants, which is survival and perhaps mission success. I'm not going to say they they don't want to win because they absolutely do. I just, when I put all that together and discovered that the British tactical methodology with the right leaders who can gauge, it was a pretty lethal combination. And and, uh, consider the French. They've been used to coming up and they get a little sloppy because they no longer necessarily deploy from column to line because the column looks like a a fist and they can just punch their way through sometimes it's sloppy and I think the the army that Napoleon had in 1805 that can do mixed order he can't do that in 1810 he doesn't have the, the proficiency but think of their mental state where they've been used to overwhelming with with physical force and here are the Brits who just stand still how unnerving how spartan like that must have been to watch them and then you get closer and you're waiting the fire and they don't and they get closer these are these are professional soldiers they know that when they are fired on it's going to be devastating and from their perspective, then to take the shock of all that one round and immediately be faced with like 500 guys with bayonets, you gotta be someplace else they'd rather be. So I think the British tactical methodology melded perfectly with the needs of the army, the needs of the small group. Have you found that in your uh, research to possibly be the case?
2: I think you're right. I mean, my focus is much more what happens off the battlefield um, and the way that that then potentially feeds into morale. So what I notice a lot is that at a lower level, when you look at things like regimental courts, martial, a lot of the time for all the people like Roger Norman Buckley have tried to paint this picture of the British criminal and punishment system being based around torture public spectacle. And there is a degree of truth in that. When you look at it at a grassroots level, you get a very different picture, which is that officers on the ground either turn a blind eye, as we mentioned earlier, particularly in relation to plundering, or they're finding their own inventive ways of reducing the scale of punishments, whether that's using a type of court that's not legally sanctioned so that they don't have to go through the process of flogging, whether that's pardoning punishments or remitting large parts of sentences. And I think there are a few reasons for that. One is that... They don't want their men in hospital because you need to be able to gather your men together to potentially fight when when needed. And and if they're convalescing because you flogged them half to death, that that reduces your combat capability. But on another level, and this is something that's been picked up quite broadly in, in a few works. If you're going to flog your men constantly, you can't build that bond of trust. And that bond of trust is quite crucial between officer to being commander and command it in the sense that there were plenty of accounts of people who were flogging their regiments viciously being shot it was known as fragging it was a known practice that battle was a good a convenient situation within which to get rid of a really awkward commander who would flog you every time your buttons weren't shiny enough or your hat wasn't quite on straight or whatever so there, there needs to be that that delicate balance because if you want your men to have the motivation to fight, you can't destroy that motivation off
1: the battlefield before they even turn up to the battlefield in the first place. When, and again, it was kind of interesting how many of my students didn't know anything about this era of Napoleon, but they sure fell in love with it in, in regards to the thing you just said. They always had a phrase, because I'd ask them, how effective is external punishment in uh, getting your men to do what you want them to do? And they would universally kind of laugh and go, sir, you can't beat a man into commitment. You can beat him into temporary compliance. But as soon as you're not there, that idea that discipline is an external tool, discipline is also an internal force when you take on those things and do them yourself. And they say, "When when we have to put the hammer to a guy, you better find a better way because he will take the first chance in, in our army. He won't re-up, or he'll find find ways to go on sick, you know, go on sick call. He'll do a lot of things. And they would just it were just so matter-of-fact. You can't be a man in a commitment. You just can't. Now, we know that the level of leadership experience in the British Army for various reasons. it, it ran the gamut from Crawford and You know, Daddy Hill, all the way down to those regimental commanders that you mentioned, there was a big disparity in talent. I know Crawford could be tough, hugely tough on his guys, but what he was trying to do was give them the skills so that in battle they would survive. Uh, So I, I think that coercion is a threat. Yeah, you don't want to get a DUI in today's Army. But on the other hand, you would just let, imagine what your men would think of you. And so, yeah, I, I think the most effective commanders found a way around some of these things. They, my instinct in it, and because it's not mentioned in the sources except kind of peripherally where you knew the officer was getting his cut when it comes down to the chickens or the, or the pigs. And you'd have to think that there had to be some reciprocity because for that, he probably looked the other way, and and the discipline, though the small group, we of having to hold your fire, to, and there was the one comment, as the soldier looked to his left and his right as his men were slow, his comrades were slowly advancing, bayonets leveled. He goes, I don't want to be here, but looking at left and right them he had to be there it was one probably going to keep him alive in the and there is external coercion there's nothing like knowing you're going to be ostracized for the very men you most respect so it's there but he stayed in the line and he noticed the steely determination and uh Joe Gilmartin my main mentor once when we were talking about S.L.A. Marshall because uh, he wrote a great line that fears can be contagious but courage no less so so you can reciprocate and draw upon a well of courage that might be reluctant courage but it'll be courage nevertheless and each each one of those steps each one of those things where you and you knew that that technique worked when i first would show my soldiers some videos and the sad thing about movies is they're so ahistorical as to be almost useless. But I, which I showed them a bit of, the, of a British unit serving under Frederick. And the, they, they did this, they leveled their muskets and they walked and I'd stop it at various places and go, what do you think? And the soldiers who didn't, my soldiers didn't know that process, that close range, they'd have to go, sir, that's insane. Because they're all gonna get killed and I said, well, look at the distance. What do you think the distance are? Mike students are really good at judging distances. That's eh, about 200 meters, sir. I said, well, I'd already passed around the musket. They'd already looked at it. And I go, what's the effective range of that musket? Oh, gotta be under a hundred yards, sir. So what danger are you in at 200? So they began to see that, wow, that technique, if you can hold the fire and the men have adopted it because they know it keeps them alive. If, You get fired on it 100 yards, and you can close that distance and close down the enemy unit. Your casualties, what's the numbers that were put out there? What about somewhere between 200 and 500 rounds had to be fired to cause a casualty? Well, that may mean that your unit got one guy that went down. And so as I believe in that technique, as I advance with my comrades, my body's pumping. Like I said, epinephrine and norepinephrine, it's doing cortisol, too. But the cortisol you can mitigate if you know what's going on. But to feel that surge, a biochemical surge, because that's what it is. It just has so many positive effects that happen to align with the British methodology. It was the best thing that those men could have happened at that moment. The idea that the, Brit- the British did this with firepower, three rounds a minute, passively waiting in line for the French to advance. I think of what that would be biochemically if we just were waiting for it. I think the desertions in combat would have been grossly higher. I think the norms of the small group would have changed. But That social experiment of how you can use the primary group to drive the right neurophysiology. Uh, when I got to pitch it to the Army Chief of Staff Strategic Studies Group, I said, "For us to understand all this works, we need longitudinal analyses of the men. We have the data: the men, their backgrounds, their social economics, you know, status. All this stuff that we could we could play with. And it was interesting because John Spencer, that's uh, student was in that group he was part of that key eight person group he said as soon as you left he said half the group said oh we know all, all there is to know about primary group cohesion and fear and he said the other half the group said we don't know anything about it and he said because they couldn't reach consensus they didn't push it forward to the chief of staff as a as a priority That data exists right now for every soldier in the Army. And if we could figure out things and where stressors are and how you can mitigate that, maybe in combat, maybe out. We could do a lot if we would open it up to professionals. But sorry I go on. I got excited when all this, the nexus of the British soldier technique, primary group, neurophysiology, and it all seemed to me to bring a clarity and understanding to the British in the field, and I think, I think it was remarkable that the men stayed around. But if you're in the middle of Spain, where are you going to go? Absolutely, and and that
2: is played out quite clearly at the end of the Peninsula War when a lot of the, the the desertion rates are remarkably low. Certainly, sort of never above. 0.1 percent sometimes 0.2 percent of forces that are on active service if that and yet when you reach the end of the provincial well, war when the war is over and the army can't track you down anymore and there's also an issue with the fact that they're not taking the the soldiers wives that the, the french wives for, home yep exactly they're not taking them home what happens to desertion it rockets because now they've got somewhere to go where they can't
1: be tracked by the army. You can get away with it in a way that you couldn't before that point. One of the reasons I, I read that, and I chose William Lawrence, but I read the recent uh, thing on Waterloo, I chose him again because the man was illiterate, yet he was a sergeant, which meant he somehow found a way to get somebody else to do the company books. But he's, he's one of those that gets his wife, his French wife, on the ship. And you just wonder, his allegiance, I think, to his French wife, Clotilda, was such that he was going to go where she went. And how many of the men, though, got on the ship, were going back to England and thought they would come back and find their families? and never did. So, yeah. What strikes me though, about the desertion rates is how could they be that small when you have between 25 and 33% of the army in hospital for various maladies, I think most likely the tie between immunosuppression and nutrition, nobody knew, well, they kinda knew, but these guys are getting, they're so susceptible to all these diseases. And today, if any of my soldiers would have had their company with 33 percent of the guys on sick call they would have been immediately relieved but with those numbers and the men having to pay what was left out of their pittance that they got from the army and pay for their own medical care through the army how the desertion rates weren't higher i think speaks again to they were enlisted for life i think they found a home and a home is where it's not a house because British soldiers certainly didn't get that out in the field. But what they did find was people that would support them. People in that primary group who would sustain the unit identity, the regimental identity is a, is a thing. And I'm not going to deny that because in, on campaign, I'm sure you were, I, I'm an honorary colonel in the 88th foot, the devil's zone. And I have a lot of pride in that, right? You, because you know what your unit did. It's battle honors. So yeah, that's real. But that's going to sustain me between firefights. But who's going to sustain me? Who's going to pump that regimental history? The older soldiers in the group, right? They're, you're not going to hear that from your officers. But you most likely will learn that, and we talk about it too, even in America, that sometimes our real leaders, they pay lip service to army values. Now, I'm talking to, to civilian leadership outside here. They pay lip service and they will use and send the army to places in a very cavalier man, manner. But that does not change the soldiers view of the seven army values. They know that it was could be unethical, it was hot, cold hard, but I think that the small family, I don't know, they, they enlisted to get away from an environment in which they had no status. And I don't think that's brought up enough. If you do your job in a small group, you gain status. Let's talk a little bit about the officers and way,
2: where they fit into the picture, because we've touched on them in a, in a roundabout way, but there's a, a real sort of contradiction at the heart of the British Army's success against Napoleon's army during this period, which is that the, Napoleon's system is fairly egalitarian. Certainly, it's ahead of its time in terms of promoting people based on being able to Mary do a good job.
1: Right? Meritocracy.
2: Exactly. But the British army isn't like that. People buy their way up the ranks. And there's this huge class divide between officers and rank and file. And yet when you read a lot of accounts from British rank and file during this time, what they don't like is being officered by someone who's been promoted from the ranks. And I have my own views on that. I I think that's possibly because when it comes to crime and, and tracking people and punishing them for these things, the, the rank and foul, the rankers, those who have been promoted from the ranks, firstly know the tricks of the trade because they've done it themselves. So they know what the men are up to and how they do it. But equally, they have something to prove in terms of their own authority, so they tend to be a bit more draconian. What's your sense of, of the dynamic there and the contradictions and how it all fits together?
1: In the cases you're talking about, there were very few of them, fortunately, I think because of the, it, it was an added variable in a in a nonlinear equation that had a lot of unexpected components. Uh, I also I think that we are all products of the culture of the society in which we are raised. It's that's why what primary group I think goes in all armies, the norms of those primary groups could be different based on culture. And I think many of the soldiers had been in society so far removed, I think they learned that that, I, th- I think they took it upon them as that was their status, that was their lot in life, and that's where they belonged. Now, we, you being wonderful brit and my good friend and me being american over here we have the idea in our in our heads we both did that we could go get an education we could put it all on the line based on our, uh, our intellect the people we attach ourselves to our willingness to do the work and we can rise to remarkable places, right? A British soldier didn't have that opportunity. He thought that's where he belonged, and I think the British soldier, I think that plays into it. So when the officer comes from their very, I think it's psychological, they like being led by officers who they believed justifiably were of a different social class. I think they had belief that somehow that made them better men it didn't uh but i think that they initially were comfortable with that so i think your point too that if you have a guy coming out of the ranks he knows all the tricks and who wants that because you got to work the system but i think it was also that they they just believed they should be officered by men of quality as far as the disparity in the quality and there was a great disparity when you read officers, their entire peninsula were accounts, and they mention the soldiers under their care like twice in 300 pages. But they talk about the various food by area in Spain. They talk about the lovely dark haired beauties they encounter in Spain. And if you didn't know better, you thought the guy had gone on holiday because his focus was fundamentally different than the soldiers so from what i've been able to to ascertain what it comes down to the bond between the soldiers and the men was how harsh was the guy but of equal importance how good was he in combat but there was one guy said we could we divided our officers into two types the come on boys and the go on boys And if you were the first, they're going to follow you. I'm amazed at how the men would follow when your battalion is now led by a lieutenant because everybody else has been wounded at Waterloo. And they would do what they needed to do. And that lieutenant was probably, what, 22, maybe? With very little, but the men did what they needed to do, partly because of identity. I think huge of it's survival. Uh, it comes down to competence. And I think the disparity between, I've never been able to get actually a, a handle on numbers. How many of these guys were decent tactical commanders? How many of these guys were decent to their, with their men? Because you only tend to read about the guys who are barbaric or totally incompetent. So never be. Maybe you'll eventually come up with a better, better gauge. But I think the the British army was strung together by, uh, by talent, but not a lot of it at the officer level. Uh, Wellington's expertise and the willingness of the British ranker to soldier on and do what needed to, be to, needed to be done. But I don't think you did it through external, because of external coercion. And remuneration just doesn't factor into it, uh, unless you're after Vittoria, and then maybe you got really lucky. But I think they do it because, where else were they gonna go? They enlisted because they were, they had no status in society, now they have status. And they have comrades and a family. I think that's the core. They have a unit identity. Why would you leave that if you were an unemployed weaver? So
2: let's add another element into the mix, which is soldiers of a different nationality. Because only a third of Wellington's force at Waterloo was made up of British Mm -hmm. troops. You've got a large Dutch contingent, King's German Legion Brunswick troops, and there were some genuine concerns about... The loyalty of particularly Belgian troops to potentially Napoleon and whether that was going to play a factor in in hamstringing the army over the course of the campaign. What's your sense of how British soldiers thought about soldiers of other nationalities?
1: When you say the the KGL, they were trained by the Brits and they were almost interchangeable with the Brits. So the Brits had nothing but. Uh, respect. I think it comes down to if you're asking from the viewpoint of the ranker, it's could these guys hold, do they do their job because if you if your unit flees or refuses to advance my flank is likely flapping out there and that's going to have a detrimental cause to my unit, to my comrades Uh, that's pretty much what I've read and I've been reading that granular stuff, it was the same in the French Army, because you had leaders that 10 days before had been opposed and they were in charge of French troops who were supposed to arrest Napoleon. I think Napoleon took a lot of chances with some of these guys putting him back in charge, but they fought like like lions doing everything for them. That I cannot explain to you. That is another conversation entirely. But I think Wellington, because he what we what my soldiers always want is decentralized a decentralized construct. They want to the trust from their officers, don't get in their business, which today, this is gonna go back to Wellington. Today, because of the phenomenal tech we have, you can have a two-star back at the talk someplace. All of a sudden, you're getting him in your ear in your middle of a firefight. He goes, son, where are your chaplains? And you go, what? <laughs> i got other things. But because those guys can micromanage, it drives my soldiers back crazy. They hate it. And Napoleon's army was based on merit and decentralized command to a great degree. Wellington's wasn't. It never was. It was always his moves. When he once said, when, what Vivian said when he saw the heavies of Waterloo being in distress, and he said, I almost charged to relieve them to take out Jacone's Lancers. And Wellington later said that he would have cashiered them had they taken that action on their own. Wellington took so much courage to go. The men always saw him, and there he is. You're the sandpit. What are you doing that far up? You're exposed. And he's bunny hopping unit to unit to make sure to shore them up to, I think his efforts there were actually, and I'm not a great Wellington fan per se, maybe it's because I'm an American, but mostly because I thought he was, I thought he was duplicious in how he would write about the men the same day he'd be sending letters back to parliament saying, we haven't paid the men in a month, the men are starving, and yet he wants to uh, call them various disparaging terms. So I'm not a great fan because I like honesty, but he held that group together. But I think the British soldier, KGL was fine. If you held your line, fine. Uh, I think the example of the 27th, you know, the NSK left exposed and they're just getting hammered but he needs that as an anchor, because if they leave, he knows the unit's behind. It was truly a near run thing. Uh, I have a friend, and now this is gonna make it odd, but we're gonna do a recreation of Waterloo, but we're gonna change the order of battle a little bit, so that, because Wellington didn't know the, conf, the force structure of the, of the French, and the French didn't know which of those units were which, and we don't know when the Prussians are coming in. And I've chosen one of my most talented students ever, and he's going to be Wellington. And I wish him luck, because I don't think he can pull it off. I'm just saying, if you ran that battle 10 times, I'm not sure the Brits are going to win four of them. And maybe that's generous. Uh, I have some own plans. I'm going to be Napoleon. And don't say any comments about ego or narcissism there, young Zach White.
2: My lips are sealed, my friend.
1: But it's such an intriguing thing. And I already warned him. I said, you have a mixed force. And you're going to have to decide how to deploy them. Proximity to British troops would be good. Don't clump them together. And then what are you going to do? And most of these sims, including the guy who's very bright, who runs these Sims, they bought, I think they've only, their the true depth of Napoleonic understanding is they watched the Sharp series on TV, which I love, but it's not the three rounds of minute nonsense. It's other things. So we have to jury rig the rules a bit to make things so that they represent a model of what happens. But I think it's remarkable what Wellington was able to do and that the British soldiers turned out to be such rocks that he could anchor. Because who else, you know, you've got the, the British right flank. I think that's the most potentially vulnerable. Sure, the, the British left flank was more of the foreign troops, but it's also, if, if you plan worst case scenario, like you're supposed to do, where might depressions possibly show up? So it, you, you you can't commit to the right, but he, he might have committed to the left. Instead, he committed up the middle and funnel guys. And I think I have a better idea. So I'll let you know. Okay, I'll let you know. We're going to have eight commanders and all but two are going to be former soldiers, former officers. So... I'll keep you posted. Make sure you do. Thinking
2: specifically about Waterloo, there's been a lot of interest in myth-busting the battle on social media. What do you think is the biggest flaw or the most unhelpful myth that we have about the battle?
1: What I really like, even though some of it may shift the, the meter a little bit too far in the other direction, is that we're finally giving credence to Non English uh, stories, accounts, histories. We're finally, finally being beyond the Maitland, now's your time stuff. We're seeing that this is so fluid. Uh, the thing that to me is the most important, and it's been talked about at the conferences, is I had an ancestor, although he wasn't, my ancestor was in the light company. Of the first foot guards defending Uguimaua, but at first the guy who found the paperwork and did everything for me goes, "Oh, they were the unit. They're right at the center that that knocked off the young, the middle guard. They they were that unit, and it was all them." And they went, "No, uh, there's so that's the myth that I think flowered and grew into such a." pro-british pro an elite unit focus as opposed to let's look and see that that command that independent uh command what is it the, I, i've forgotten with fifty eighth foot which which unit does, does that commander independently wheel out and hit the flank of the uh of the middle guard as it approaches i can't think of it i'm sorry this is it's embarrassing for me it'll come should me. know that myself but
2: um, I want to say 50 seconds
1: it might have been I just I just know that that guy get, had no direct orders from Wellington he read the tactical decision he he wheeled his guys perpendicular to the to the battle line so that he could hammer them coming in and then all the accounts of and some of them have been disparaging of the the bravery of these foreign units we've never heard their voice and I think if we're going to get a if we're going to have a measured account so we can best weigh and look at variables of what took place we need to have all those accounts and I really welcome them I've been that's some of the things I've been reading recently of those accounts because I'll admit I was brought in under the the Romance and Glory of Waterloo. And it was the number one place when I was like 19 years old I ever wanted to go. And that's because I was reading, what is it? Uh, Sutherland's Men of Waterloo, that kind of approach, that, that romantic stilted stuff. But it certainly will hook your heart until you realize, uh, there's a lot more to it than this sadly over here most folks aren't reading even into the 200th anniversary i've just had a look it was the 50 second, 50, second light. Okay. 50 seconds thank you that's fine
2: um one final question from me the focus of the Waterloo remembered program is of course about remembrance and encouraging people to reflect on the battle its significance and the human sacrifice what does waterloo mean to you personally
1: Outside of the fact that by only a thin thread of my ancestor not not taken around it defending Google that I wouldn't be here other than that, uh, it was the quintessential, it was the end. It was the this isn't Wellington does not have his peninsula war army there. He just doesn't. And so for me, I'm much more emotionally tied to much of what goes on in Spain than Waterloo. But Waterloo means to me some unusual things, the fellowship of the BCMH and people of of unquestionable character and insight who got together in an effort to bring this to light in the most complete way. That's what I think about Waterloo, I see. I have the invitation to the Waterloo banquet from the Waterloo 200. Society. I have that framed and on the wall, I have all those other invitations that I had and unfortunately could not attend. And it's the it's the people, the the professionals who used the 200th anniversary of Waterloo as a vehicle to. Bring this to light again, to really delve into it, to have conferences, to to share sources. And I, I wish we had something similar here where you get this all-in commitment by the greatest minds, the greatest historians who want to. One of my students initially said, Sir, what history? It's all done. What's to learn? And I had to say, well. First off, what you will learn is everything that you think you know is probably wrong. And that somebody like yourself, my good friend, who will dig up court martial records, who will find perhaps that there was this wink, wink, nudge, nudge system in place that allowed things, that will reshape the perception of the British soldier, the British Army methodology. That's what we do. And so it's alive. And I just love the the whole BCMH approach in the Waterloo 200 committee. I was really engaged with and That's what Waterloo means to me. Uh, and the fact that it probably did romantically draw me in. And I, I think it's an indicator of the degree to which men will go and men will do what they will do in battle if you have put the right motivations in place. Now, I think the British do phenomenal things in spite of their leadership many times, not because of it. And I don't think they had a clue of what those the three coercion, remuneration, and, and normative model even meant. Yet somehow, that primary group formed about a hardship, and they sure, the officers sure knew how to utilize that to their best interest. And I don't know. I know it's a long kind of circular answer, but it brought me in because of romance when I was 20. But it led me to some real human physiological conclusions and a lot of respect for these guys, which is why some of these current projects, the, the, human, the, the remains found at Burgos. Uh, we have several individuals with parts thereof and we have a very uh, high suspicion that there's many more there that have just been on earth accidentally they've been stored in museums like the back room we hope to do them honor once we have them the the archaeologists have they after they do their isotope work and they do all their magic and we can learn so much from these men about their nutrition their stressors isotopes will tell us whether they were french spanish or british and the idea that this project would then end with these men being given the proper burials that they deserved i think that is the outcome of Waterloo, this, this need that, that you have and I have in some to to conclude this in a way that shows the proper respect for these men who died for their country. Uh, a long way from home in a siege that was going to be, it was almost impossible and the, the only one Wellington couldn't take by storm. When I got to, when we had the BCMH, uh, Peninsula War Tour that I got to be a part of. And when I did my bit at the cemetery at Elvas, you could see there were not that many dry eyes in the house. And when I told my soldiers, because you go back, because I had to squeeze in and go back and teach, they go, what are you doing, sir? They always were very interested. What's, what's going on? How, did you have fun? And I told them what I did, and they had nothing but they were in awe that a group of folk would get together in such a way as to pay their respects for service and they were all for it. And it's them that have often said, just let me know. I can, I can pitch in some money if you need something to carry on that. And we certainly do because if we're going to, if we're going to, get them interred with proper honors, that's not gonna be cheap. But I'm just telling you when my soldiers heard about it, they understood perfectly and they would expect that somebody would eventually bring them home. And we have an entire part of the army based in Hawaii. His job is to find research and bring home soldiers all the way back as far as America has been America. And I think, and I have great respect for what you're doing here. I think that's what this project is about, the same degree of respect.
2: If people want to find out more about that, then they can go to the uh, NapoleonicWars.net, where if they click on the Bones of Burgos tab, they can join a mailing list to be kept up-to-date about that project and and the progress that we are making on this. And and there is actually a podcast specifically on that, on the list. Ed, it's been... An absolute joy talking to you. Thank you so much for joining me for Waterloo Remembered.
1: It's been an honour
3: to be here. That was the historian Ed Coss joining me to discuss the life of soldiers during the Napoleonic Wars. And Ed's book, All for the King's Shilling, is available to order online now. Remember to join the conversation on Twitter and in the forum at thenapoleonicwars.net. What are your thoughts on what motivated a soldier in combat? Do you identify with some of the phenomena that Ed outlined? Remember to use the hashtag Waterly Remembered and please keep spreading the word. I'll see you tomorrow when the emphasis on the human and personal impacts of war continues, as I'll be talking to the archaeologist Stuart Eve and Army veteran Ben Mead, both of whom are part of the Waterloo Uncovered initiative, about what the project has discovered whilst digging and surveying the battlefield. Until then, I'm Zach White. This has been Waterly Remembered from the Napoleonicist. Take care, my friends. Stay well. Stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening.